call us when you went to fight with Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebenezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Okay, very good. Now, originally the tribes that were called to the conflict, the tribes that were called to the battle, are mentioned in 634. Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. These are the tribes that are called to the conflict. Ephraim was not one of those. But as uh, David would have talked to you about in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 7, after the battle is started and the enemy is on the run, the tribe of Ephraim is called to, to, to station themselves by the Jordan and to destroy some of these enemy's troops. But the text tells us that Ephraim is not satisfied with the role that they have played in this particular conflict. They play, they think they should have played a bigger role. Now, it's easy to say that after the battle's won, isn't it? And, and Ephraim will do this twice in the book of Judges. They do it in Judges 8, 1 through 3, and Gideon turns away their anger with a soft answer. Uh, and we'll see that in just a moment. But it's not going to be that way when we get to chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Now, Lord willing, on Sunday morning, we want to talk about Matthew 20, about uh, James and John asking for positions on Jesus' right and left in his kingdom. And the Bible says that greatness among God's people isn't measured the same way it is in the world. What all does that mean? I want to tell you the tribe of Ephraim is the exact opposite of that. The tribe of Ephraim isn't celebrating what the Lord has done. They are not thankful for the victory. They are jealous that they are not playing a significant enough role in this particular story. And that is antithetical to all that God calls us to. And what is this thing you've done? You've not even called us when you went to battle with Midian. You contended with them vigorously. One of the things that Gideon does that is very uh, commendable, Gideon downplays his role in this story. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, he says, What have I done now in comparison with you? In verse 3, middle of the verse, he's going to do the same thing. What was I able to do in comparison with you? So in 8 verse 2, in 8 verse 3, midway through those verses, he downplays any role that he has played in this particular story. And that is the way it should have been because it wasn't Gideon anyway. It was the Lord who was giving him victory. What have I done in comparison to you? But he emphasizes that they have brought back the biggest trophies of war. They have brought back Oreb and Zeb. 
They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. Now I want to ask you, what are the odds of that? <laughs> what are the odds of that? But anyway, I, I really like that joke. And that was my joke I was saving. Uh, so, so. <laughs> I searched long and hard for Gideon jokes and I couldn't find any. <laughs> yeah. It's probably not just that you look up Gideon jokes. But, but anyway, he says, what are the, he says, is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? That's, that's a really interesting statement. The vintage would have been, this is our best, this is our best crop, this is the best thing that we've been able to gather. And are not the gleanings of Ephraim. What does it mean? What would you be doing if you were gleaning grapes? You'd be going over them a second or third time to get the last little bits, yeah. which was supposed to be left for widows, orphans, and the like. Yeah, the grapes in, in Israel, in Israelite law, Deuteronomy 24, 19-22, they were left for the poor and the widows and the orphans in groups like that. They were left for those groups. But, but what it was is after the pickers have gotten the best part, the gleaners would come and get what was left behind. And that would not necessarily be the best of the crop. But he said, your gleanings are better than my vintage crop. It was a way of exalting Ephraim, and it was a way of minimizing his role in the story. What have I done now in comparison to you? And when they hear this, their anger subsided. And like we stated, we alluded earlier to Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, and a harsh word stirs up anger. In this case, Gideon shows himself a wise diplomat. At the same time, uh, Ephraim's bad attitude will manifest itself again later. Now, when we get to these cities in verses 4 through 9, in, in verses 4 through 9, there are going to be two cities, Succoth and Penuel, which will not show kindness or hospitality to Gideon and to his men. And as a result of that, he's going to threaten punishment. And in 8 verses 13 through 17, he carries out the punishment on these two towns. He carries out the punishment on those two towns. Now... Uh, let's read what it says. I, I, I want to ask you too, uh, what memory do you have of these cities and uh, any events that may have happened there? But in verse 4, Gideon and 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. And he said to the men of Succoth, please give me loaves of bread. Please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me. For they are weary, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. The leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand? 
Why should we, that we should give bread to your army? Gideon said, All right, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, and I will thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars, he went up from there to Penuel and spoke similarly to them. And the men of Penuel answered him just as the men of Succoth had answered. So he spoke also to the men of Penuel, saying, When I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Now, can you think of those cities in, in any part they had played in Israelite history? And, and by the way, I do apologize if we got in later, I couldn't check my email on the road. I, if, 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 if Paul, if you ask a good question that I'm overlooking, feel free to bring it out because I did not I did not get to even check things very well. But what, what happens in these cities? Does it do any of you know? Well, Succoth, uh, right after Jacob met Esau, when he thought Esau was going to kill him when he came back you know, yeah. with you know, Rachel and Leah and all the kids. Yeah. Uh, right after that, he goes to Succoth and is there. Okay. That's one reference. Yes, and that's, that is perhaps the greatest significant, the most significant thing we see in this city. This city was assigned to the tribe of Gad in Joshua 13, verse 27. So it would have been in this territory across the Jordan. It's identified here on this particular map, but Succoth. Now, that that there is another Succoth when the people came out of the land of Egypt, but it's not the same city that we're dealing with as we are with Jacob. Penuel. What happens there, Hannah? Um, is it the same as Peniel in Genesis 32? Seems like it's the same city in Genesis 32. And what does Jacob do there? Wrestles. God. Okay, wrestles with an angel. I remember one preacher who was a, a wrestling fan said it's the only contact sport mentioned in the Bible. I, I don't know if that be true. I guess the Bible does say I don't box. It's one who beats the air. So I guess it mentions box. But, but Penuel, and the, 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 word, the word El has, is a shortened form of Elohim or God. And this word has the sense of face. And remember like he says, it's I've seen God face to face. There in Genesis thirty verse uh, uh, Genesis thirty two verse thirty, I think it is. But but here are cities that are that are associated with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Cities that are associated with the promises of God, and they absolutely refuse to show hospitality to Gideon, hospitality to his weary men, or encouragement to their forces as they're going to battle. Now, when we get to verses 17 through 13 through 17, and we see the punishment that is predicted against them enacted, I want us to ask, I want us there to deal with the question, what are we supposed to learn from this? What is the message here that uh, that we should learn from this text? But Right now, in verse 10, it says, Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkar, 
Karkor, which we don't know exactly where that is. Some think it's east of the Dead Sea, about a thousand miles. It says their armies with them about 15,000 men. All who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east, for their fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. Gideon went up by way of those who lived in the tents on the east of Naba and Jagbaha, and and attacked the camp. Attacked the camp when the camp was unsuspecting. When Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Um, Zeba and Zalmunna, their names continually appear in this text. They are described as the kings of Midian in verse 5 and in verse 12. But first of all, this picture, this picture anyway, is humorous. Even with all that they have left, all that they have lost in their army, they have in verse 10, 15 thousand men. Fifteen thousand men. Now Gideon had how many? Three hundred. And remember Joshua promised in Joshua chapter 23 verse 10 or he's he's making this a statement of of the past. One of your men puts to flight a thousand for the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised. There's no way that this happens unless the Lord is fighting for them. And because the Lord is fighting for them and the Lord is with them, that these 300, and there may have been some that have added on now, like the tribe of Ephraim. There may have been some of those. But still, the army they're pursuing is bigger than, uh, the army they're pursuing is bigger than they are. And yet they are pursuing them they are and they come and attack their camp when the camp is unsuspecting now we're going to that word that's used for unsuspecting it can mean it can mean trust it can mean be secure uh, it's sometimes used of our trust in God but it can be used of a people who are secure and who are just not aware of what difficulty awaits them. It's going to be used later that way in the book of Judges. In Judges 18 verse 7, remember how the tribe of Dan is going to go up here and attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people. It's the same word that's used here in Judges chapter 3, uh, Judges 8 and verse 11. Now, right now we've talked a lot to the first 12 verses. And we even got a question to ponder that we're going to look at in just a moment. But do you have a comment on any of this right now? A comment or a question, a thought? David? Well, back in the first three verses when yes. uh, Gideon's trying to appease those from Ephraim, I think it's interesting what he didn't say, but certainly could have. Okay. Uh, I think he could have said, I called those that God told me to call because that call came right after the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in chapter 6. And certainly he could have said God wanted him to fight with a minimal number of troops. You know, the first part of chapter 7, he starts off with 32,000, ends up with 300. 
because this is what God told him to do. And so he could have made arguments from the theological standpoint. Instead, he makes psychological arguments, which aren't bad arguments, but I think it's interesting that he didn't appeal to God yeah. and talk about that, because those were, those were very valid points. Oh, I mean, and, and for God's people, those have got to be the most convincing arguments. Right. If we're being convinced by lesser arguments, there's still a problem if we're not turning to God and turning to Scripture. And so, you're right, and that is a, that's a very good observation that you make on the text. Ultimately, God was in charge of who was in that army to begin with anyway, because it wasn't Gideon's idea to whittle them down to uh, 300 people. Certainly not. Um, but anything else? What, what other thoughts do you have? I was just thinking how the Midianites were unsuspecting, in a sense, when Gideon came upon them the first time. Yeah. Uh, part of me is like going, so where were your, your outline pickets and guarding the, uh, the perimeter? But I know. You're, you're exactly right. I, I think, you know, you couldn't be more unsuspecting than you were the first time for this 300 group of, a group of 300 to attack uh, an army this enormous and, and yet they didn't learn anything from it. You're right. I, I, I think that is kind of ironic as well. Okay, what Gideon does here is exactly what he said he was going to do in verse 7 and in verse 9. It says, in verse 13, Gideon the son of Joash returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, And he captured a youth from Succoth and questioned him. Then the youth wrote down for him the princes of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. He came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are weary? He took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. He tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Now, in verse 7, he said to the men of Succoth, he said, I'm going to discipline you with briars and thorns when the Lord has given them into my hands. When God has given them into my hands. And indeed he does that in verse 16. And he told the people of Penuel that he would tear down their tower. And he does tear down their tower and kill their men. Now, what are we supposed to learn from that? And, and I grant it that it's not necessarily easy. You've got you to think about what are we to make of this. But I want you to remember... These are, these are Israelite cities. They're across the Jordan, but they're Israelite cities. What is it that we're to learn? Well, one thing that I think is fairly obvious from the things that have played out, there doesn't seem to be a lot of cohesion between the tribes, and especially the ones 
west of the Jordan and east of the Jordan. Yes. Uh, and so it's like, yeah, they're fellow Israelites, but they're second-class citizens at best. And so I'm going to punish them. And, and he even goes further with Penuel. He said he was going to tear down the tower, but he killed the men too. Okay. So you're making that assessment about uh, regarding the second-class citizens on Gideon. I, well, yes, okay. Gideon regarding the yeah. Israelites. But, but, but also, there was some of that going the other way. Yes. You know, as they, you know, they, there's a lack of tribal cohesion as they refuse to get involved. And, and you listen, you know, when you got their heads all, hands already with you, then we'll talk, we'll give you some bread. But not to, so there isn't, they're not all pulling together and fighting together. Yeah, without looking at a map or knowing where those cities were, I would have thought that they were foreign cities. Okay. The way they treated Gideon and his army. Yes. Go ahead. You may you may say what I'm about to say. But, no, well, I was just which thinking is dangerous. That. And I want y'all to do that. <laughs> so, but go and ahead. If they had just shown like basic hospitality towards Gideon, they seventy seven men would not have been taken out and flogged with briars, and the tower and the people would yes, have been killed. Yes, I know. I mean, I, I'm not sure how. We have no idea really how big these towns are. Was feeding 300 men one meal <laughs> gonna like be a real huge issue? I don't think that. Yeah, you know, I don't think I mean, that's the key thing but, there. I mean, they they could have they could have done this without endangering their own self. Other than if they had been found, if Gideon had been unsuccessful, then these are the two yeah. cities that conspired with them. And, and maybe they are maybe they are counting on the Zeba and Zalmunna to come forth victoriously from this. But particularly, I think the way Hannah said it, it is fascinating that they are getting more opposition from Israelite towns than Midianite towns. And you look at this battle over Midian, and this victory over Midian, I, I know that the Bible is summing up what is happening here. And there may have been many horrible ordeals within that conflict. But at the same time, there is more recorded conflict within Israel than from the Midianites. Remember one of the points that Stephen makes in his sermon in Acts 7. Stephen makes the point in Acts 7 that you've always rejected the deliverers that God has sent you. He uses Joseph as an example. He uses Moses as an example. Uh, he uses the prophets as examples of that. And of course, Jesus as the preeminent example. But you see that same theme in the book of Judges. You see that same theme. And you do see these people fighting with each other. Now, to the point that, that David was making, um, while you see this resistance on the part of these cities... At the same time, was Gideon really acting the way he should? The one who was so gracious to the people of Ephraim, should he have done this? I don't know. I mean, it may be that this man who was so reluctant to go to war at God's decree against Midian now is taking too much on himself by, by saying, okay, 
I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tear down your tower, which ends up, you know, people are killed in the process. Something else I just thought of. The tribes east of the Jordan would have physically been closer to Midian than any of the others. On the one hand, you would think they'd look at Midian as more of a threat, unless they had gotten friendly with them. Yeah. They could have gotten friendly, or it could have been like Sarah said earlier. They could have feared, you know, um, yeah, repercussions. You know, if they if they're they're supporting yeah. supporting an unsuccessful effort. But I, I think too we see in some of this language where the Bible says, like in Matthew ten verse forty through forty two, that if you give a disciple a cup of cold water in my name. I mean, even giving them bread and things. Gideon wasn't asking them to join the army to take up the pursuit. Gideon was just asking, can you support us while we're doing that? That, that, that They would have been aiding the war effort. And we aid the gospel effort when we support people to go forth and teach and preach in these kinds of circumstances. Now... Um, I'm sure more could be done with that. But those are some thoughts that really hit me about... uh, And we're going to find within the book of Judges, there are going to be several times that Israel is going to be fighting Israel. They, They didn't fight the Canaanites all that well, didn't drive them out of the land, but boy, they can fight one another pretty well. And um, that's sometimes a picture of of life. We, we, we go to war with those we should be at peace with than are peace with those we should be at war with. But in verse 18, he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. And they said, he said, they were my brothers the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise up yourself and fall on us. For as the man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments which were on the camel's necks. So Zeba and Zalmunna are in his hands as he's already demonstrated to the people of the city, uh, the cities of Succoth and Penuel. And now... Uh, He said, who was that you killed? And they said they were sons of kings like you. Now, this is referring to some kind, either it is a reference to this conflict and something that's happened earlier, or it is a reference to when the Midianites would terrorize the land that sometimes they became very violent and killed people. But... Uh, Gideon knows that they have been behind, or, or, or at least suspects, that they have been behind the killing of his brothers. And he says, if you would have let them live, I would have let you live. But because you've done this, you're going to be killed. Gideon's son will not kill them, but Gideon does. Now, I, I won't tell you, and I read some things on that. I'm, I'm not exactly sure 
What all were to make of that? I'm not sure if 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 Jether is commendable for not wanting to kill them, or if he is just afraid, like the Bible says, and he should have done it. I don't know if saying he's afraid means he should have done it or not. But it's it's kind of hard to make everything to make out much of that. And was he really supposed to preserve these Midianite kings? I don't know about that. Well, when he says he's afraid, it made me think of, well, like father, like son. Because the first time we're introduced to Gideon, where is he? He's hiding, you know, in a wine press, I think. Yes. Uh, Yeah, a wine press, you know, threshing some wheat. Not a place you would normally do that. Yes. Uh, So, he was afraid. Absolutely. So now, his son is afraid, too. Yeah. And uh, Gideon seems a little upset that his son would be afraid, and how soon he forgets. Uh, yeah, that, that's true. That is that is very true, and um, and of course he was afraid too to tear down the father's altar to Baal right. in the daylight, yeah. and he does it after dark in six twenty-seven. And he was so, afraid to go down and listen. Yeah, because he took Pura with him. He took Pura with him. That's right. In in Judges 7. Good point. At at the end of verse 18, whenever they say, they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. To me, that strikes me. They were trying to flatter him a little bit. Like a son of a king, you know. Not so much, oh, I killed your brother, but... You know, they were they were mighty men. You know, like you, you're a mighty man. You're cool. Is a yeah. trying to perhaps save them. I, I I understand what you're saying, and I and I saw things that it stated that, that they took that same kind of view. The only thing I had a trouble with that is does that really fit with verse 21 where it seems like they're taunting Gideon to come on kill them. I don't know. You know, but but I I can understand Sarah reading that verse that way. And and you may be right. You may be right. But if it does, if it it doesn't seem like it seems like by the time that they're kind of taunting him, oh, why don't you go ahead and do it yourself? They kind of know the the fate isn't going to be too good. Well, and I'm, I'm also kind of wondering, um, the the firstborn was considered like a sign of the father's strength, right? Is if I, So after Jether won't kill them, then they start taunting him. You, Your firstborn is obviously a weakling and mm-hmm. a scaredy cat, so obviously you have no strength kind of thing. But. Mm-hmm. It may have been. May have been. So they they definitely do um, do. Uh, they're doing that type of thing in verse twenty one. So it may well be. And back in verse sixteen, when he uh, disciplined them with thorns, was that likely to? I have a note which says that they were dragged over thorns, which probably resulted in their deaths. So I have read the same kind of thing before. Um, and, and and some writers will say, no, uh, you know, it was just, it, it, you know, the punishment of Penuel is worse because he specifies he killed the men. Um, I, I just, I don't think we can know for sure if that's the case or not, Sarah. But I, I think, you know, there may be some significance to the fact that word is given in verse 17 and not specifically said in verse 16. 
course, it may be that if we're there to assume that um, we are to assume that, that that kind of punishment could have resulted in that. This is the same word, though, for... It says briars and thorns. I believe it's the word for thorns that's used back in Genesis 3.18. And I didn't compare it in the Greek translation. But, you know, think about that's a wage of sin in Genesis 3. Um, Here it is a punishment to these cities who haven't joined in the effort to destroy this enemy of the Lord. And, of course, later we know Jesus will wear the crown of thorns. All of that's connected. We haven't done as much connecting everything in Judges to Jesus. It's not because I don't believe that or think that's important. It's just we've got a little bit more time on our Tuesday night Psalms class than we do here. But always be looking for those kind of connections. The part of the chapter that to me is, is most fascinating is particularly these next six or seven verses in 22 through 28. And um, Justin, would you want to read 22 through 28? Sure. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earnings, the, the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the gold, golden earrings that he requested was, was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And and Gideon made an ephod out of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel Israel poured after it there, and and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. (coughs) So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Okay, very good, very good. Now, he comes back from battle. He's been victorious. You find other tribes saying, we're not going to support you in this effort. Now, some others say, rule over us. And your sons rule over us. Because you've delivered us from the hands of the Philistines. I mean, not the Philistines. That, that's I'm sorry. <laughs> Hands of Midian. Um, does something about that strike you as strange? <laughs> the whole point of Gideon fighting with this small army is that if you fight with the big army, you're going to say you've delivered yourself. In chapter 7, in verse 2. In chapter 7, in verse 7. When the Lord told Gideon in 6, 14, and 15, Go and deliver Israel in your strength. And he says, you know, in effect, I can't do it. Who am I? I'm the least. 
in my Father's house. So in all these passages of Scripture, you find that God is showing them their inability to save, their inability to deliver. When Gideon prays, he said, Lord, if you will deliver Israel by me, as you have said, make the fleece wet and the ground dry. And if you will deliver Israel by me, make the fleece dry and the ground wet. All of the emphasis before has been on the fact that the Lord is to deliver. And now after all of this, they attribute to Gideon deliverance from the Midianites. I want to tell you, all we can see is what's right before our eyes. Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. Because we can only see what's before our eyes, sometimes in successes, we are way too quick to bestow heroic status on somebody like Gideon. Instead of understanding that God is ultimately the cause of all good things that all good people do. And and Gideon's answer sounds good. I'm not going to rule over you. My sons are not going to rule over you. But the Lord is going to rule over you. Now in itself, that answer is great. I'm not so sure he meant that. Or if he did mean it, He may have meant it right there, right then. But if he did mean it, he's going to kind of lose sight of it. Um, There are several things that lead me to say that. In Deuteronomy 17, what did God tell the kings in verses 16 and 17? Not... To multiply. What were the kings not to multiply? Wives. Okay, they're not to multiply wives, horses, or silver, gold, or silver. Okay. Now, what does Gideon say? Right off the bat, I'm not going to rule over you. My sons are not going to rule over you. But I tell you what. I'll let you give me some gold earrings. And Justin read a moment ago in verse uh, 26 about the weight of that gold. And so in, in verses 24 through 26, he is multiplying silver and gold. And we're going to find later when we get to 8 verse 30 that he had many wives. So he multiplies wives. He multiplies gold and silver. He's living kind of like a king would live among the people. And, by the way, what else, when you read this account, what else does this story remind you of? If any of you has an earring from his spoil, if any of you has a gold earring, break it off and give it to me. What does that remind you of? 
golden calf in Exodus 32. If there's ever an event that should have brought back bad memories to the people of Israel, that would have been it. I mean, that was Exhibit A uh, in Deuteronomy 9 that you have always been a stubborn and rebellious people. You have always been stubborn and rebellious. And they break off their gold earrings. They bring them uh, to Gideon and uh, the Bible tells us that Gideon made it into an ephod, placed it in his city, and all Israel played the harlot with it, so it became a snare to Gideon and to his household. Became a snare to them. Now, when you read this, there are a lot of words that are significant there. The word ephod. I think I spelled it right. But what is, when you read that word in the Old Testament, what does it indicate? Part of the priest's garment. Sometimes it is a priestly garment. And you find that in passages like Exodus 28, verses 6 through 14. There's a priestly garment. You also find that in 1 Samuel 23 as um, David inquires of Abiathar who has uh, the ephod and uh, also 1 Samuel 30 verses 7 and 8. The ephod apparently containing the Urim and Thummim to inquire of God. There are some times, though, that the ephod is used in the context of idols. And we'll see that later in the book of Judges. We'll see that in Judges chapter 17, verses 3-5. through 5. The ephod in reference to idols in Judges 18-14. You see that. Uh, in Hosea 3 and verse 4. All these passages demonstrate that um, demonstrate a use of the term ephod that apparently indicates an idol. I would say that the latter use, some think it's some kind of a garment to put on the idol itself, but somehow a connection with idolatry is the point that's made here. These gold earrings are made in some type of idolatrous thing and Israel played the harlot. A term that's been used throughout the book to their unfaithfulness to God, their true father. They played the harlot and it became a snare. Now this word snare was used in Judges 2 verse 3. In Judges 2 verse 3, the Bible says, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Judges 2 verse 3. The same word that is used for the Canaanites being a snare there and in a passage like Deuteronomy 6.17 
or Deuteronomy 7.16, excuse me, Deuteronomy 7.16, that these passages about a snare here refer to Gideon's image. Gideon does seem to have had some positive impact on the people as we get to verses 33 through 35. But, doesn't mean that Gideon doesn't do some bad things. And here this is obviously a bad thing. Uh, I want us to read 30, 29 through 32. And we're going to ask why... Um, What are some other signs that Gideon may not have declined their offer for a king? Roman, you will read 29 to 32. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abyss Rites. Okay, very good. Now, is there any other in- indication there that Gideon may have, we said he multiplies wives, he multiplies silver and gold. Um, is there any other indication he may have wanted, may have been a king? Sarah? So I have a note that says Abimelech, which is what he named his son by the concubine, means my father is a king. Okay. You know, that's, that's kind of a giveaway. Be, could be a slight, you know. So. <laughs> yes. My father is king. And um, so maybe a good indication that um, that that he that he had more than more aspirations that he indicated in verse 23. Uh, but even that, you know, having many wives has 70 sons. 70 sons. And throughout the book of Judges, we're going to find some of these minor judges who had 40 sons or 30 sons that rode on 30 donkeys and 40 grandsons. All of this, I think, shows us that while these, they may not have worn the title king, they were still imitating some of the bad practices of a king and using their power simply as a way to promote themselves, as a way to get anything that they wanted. And he has 70 sons, many wives, large harem, has a concubine uh, in Shechem who gives birth to Abimelech who will, be, who, who will play a part in this story later. And, and he dies at a ripe old age. Now, now, that little statement, he died at a ripe old age, may be a favorable statement about Gideon. Because that is only said that I can find of Abraham and David elsewhere in the Bible found of Abraham in Genesis 25, I believe verse 8, and of David in 1 Chronicles 29, it's around verse 28, I believe. But it's, it is, so it is a statement rarely made, and it may be that, it may be that that gives us a little positive picture of Gideon. But as a whole, 
after he's won this victory, Gideon doesn't appear as admirable of a character. Um, but let's see what we in verse 33. It came about as soon as Gideon was dead, the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Belbareth their god. Now, as, as, as poor as Gideon was, and he played the harlot in verse 27, he and his household with the idol. But, but when he dies, things get worse. As soon as he's so he had some kind of restraining influence on the town and on the people in spite of his failures. But in verse 34, the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the household of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in accordance with all the good he had done to Israel. They didn't remember the Lord. People served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua. But there arose another generation that didn't know the Lord. And these people who have experienced God's deliverance quickly forget. Man, we are quick to forget, aren't we? We're quick to forget all the goodness that God gave to us. I have been trying to improve later in an area where I've fallen short, praying each morning, give me my daily bread. Not because there is a famine in the land, but because by praying that prayer, it helps remind us that every blessing reminds us of our dependence on Him. Every blessing is from Him. Give us this day our daily bread. And, and let's not be forgetful that all the things we enjoy are from Him. They're not from ourselves. They're from Him. But it says they didn't remember the Lord. And they didn't show kindness to those that the, God, that the Lord used to bring deliverance. The people look at this through the judges. The people treat the judges largely the way they treat God. They forget God. They forget those God used to bring deliverance. That doesn't mean everything Gideon did was worthy of imitation. We know that's not the case. But it does say even the good things he had done that they needed to be appreciative for, they didn't show that kindness to his house, to him and to his house. And the next chapter is going to illustrate a lot of that. But thank you guys. Um, and uh